everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so glad that you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Caitlin Chess, and uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, but particularly how um, how our uh, theology should uh, translate into our uh, personal politics as well, and how to reconcile that, as well as um, we're going to dive a lot into... Um, like I've, I've just kind of termed it like thinking about your faith or using the intellectual part of your brain as it pertains uh, to faith as well. And so we're going to dive into that in just a few minutes. However, if this does happen to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to let you know that there's really two things that drive uh, pretty much everything that we do here in the podcast. And it's these two core beliefs or these two core values. And the first one is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because, uh, I mean, you've, you've, you, you know, uh, if you've, you know, been through, throughout people who disagree with you, um, that there are just some conversations that it is very tough to have because maybe they disagree with you so much. And it's not so much the disagreement piece of it. It's more of the, the tone or, uh, or how they hold those beliefs that can make it really difficult to have uh, a productive dialogue around those uh, different subjects. And that's really like what we're going to talk a lot about today is one of those difficult conversations, as I mentioned earlier, as it pertains to um, politics and theology and uh, the intellectual part of our um, of our faith as well, which is just stuff that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. But the second one is is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything regardless of whether or not we agree with them on it. We believe that there is something that we can take away from everyone. And sometimes it is uh, an example to follow. And sometimes it is uh, a warning to heed as well for maybe the mistakes that other people have made as well. And so, as I mentioned, though, today uh, we're going to hit up, you know, having a difficult conversation and I'm so honored that uh, Caitlin would be on the podcast to join me. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Caitlin is a writer, author, and a doctor of a theology student at Duke Divinity School studying political theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation. She has her master's in theology, uh, in systemic theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. She is also the author of The Liturgy of Politics, which we talk a little bit about in this conversation, and the subtitle is Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, which was released uh, a couple of years ago. And she has also written about theology, politics, and uh, culture at places such as Christianity Today, The New York Times, Relevant, Christ and Pop Culture, and so many other places as well. And so that's a little bit about Caitlin, and without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Caitlin, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, I know that um, you're you're getting your doctorate right now, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and even just from, you know, from reading your book and from uh, listening to you on a bunch of different places, I could tell that you, you do a lot of thinking and a lot of learning. And so <laughs> I would be curious, just as we're getting started, what is the, the thing or the things that are like ca- capturing your attention or capturing your imagination right now? I love that question so much. <laughs> that's that's so fun. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm a big learner and a big reader. And um, I feel really lucky that I get to just be in school right now. And that's like my full-time job is reading stuff and thinking about things and talking to people about it. Um, one of the things that's been a consistent theme already this semester, I'm four weeks into my semester, I'm taking some ethics classes, um, some medieval theology classes. But one of the things that's really been consistent that I guess I sort of knew before, but I had never had it articulated in a way that was helpful was the fact that, you know, I, I remember hearing this at 10 in seminary, that there's a difference between description and prescription. And as a means for thinking about scripture, that can be really helpful. In fact, it's like crucial to understand when the, you know, there's a difference between those. And yet I've learned that description and prescription are not so completely far apart. Um, the language that we use to describe the world that we live in shapes how we think that we should be involved in it. A really good example of, of this, um, the language that we use around refugees or immigrants, if you are an illegal alien, means something different than if you are an undocumented immigrant. Like those, That's one of the things my advisor here has, has just really hammered into my head that I think is really useful is to realize that bound up in the language we use are certain determinations. Like we've already made decisions about how the world is. And it's made me really thoughtful about not just the language that I use, but then evaluating when someone's communicating with me, are there other things that they have communicated with the language that I might not initially think about, which is another great, like, we're going to talk about, you know, politics and how we, you know, take in information. That's a huge part of it is like being able to identify what language is doing. So again, I guess that's something I sort of knew, but it's just been really helpful to realize there is moral weight to the way we describe things. That's really kind of changed some things for me. That. Can you tease that out a little bit more? Like the, like particularly like the prescription part that you're talking about at that and how that differs from the description. Yeah. So when it comes to scripture, I think it's really important to, to recognize, right. There are stories in scripture that are not supposed to be proscriptive for us. Um, there's lots of really awful violence and mistreatment of people. And we're not supposed to take those stories and go, this is how we should be living. It's describing the world at the time. Um, and yet to, to say that something is ever just like purely prescriptive is wrong, right? There's a reason why there's times in scripture where language is used differently to describe what people are doing or what's happening with them. There's a reason why, um, even there's even a, a I forget which story it is in the, in the old Testament where there's re- repetition of the word rape to be like, okay, the way I have chosen to describe what happened in this situation is morally meaningful. It wasn't consensual, you know, sex, it was rape. So on one hand, there is a really important difference between prescription and description when it comes, especially to how we read scripture. I should identify when it is telling me this is what you should do. And then sometimes when it's just telling me this is the way things are in a broken world. And yet that doesn't mean that description is neutral. It doesn't mean that when I choose the words that I use to describe the world, I'm just using whatever words come to mind. No, I'm using words that have particular moral weight to them. And I should be careful to, to use words in a way that is, is best descriptive of what I am trying to say. Yeah, and I think the the tendency is, I mean, and push back on this too. I think we tend to view it through prescription, <laughs> through most of the Bible. Yes. Uh, what, like, what do you think? Like, what do you think is that? What What do you think causes causes us to lean more towards the? Yeah, we're just going to go the prescription route instead of the description route. 
I think it really stems from a misunderstanding of what scripture is. Um, A lot of us grew up thinking this is just a repository of instruction or it's a dictionary or encyclopedia. If I have a problem, right, I can go to the back where it lists all the verses that talk about X, Y, Z thing. And I can go look up all those verses and then that'll tell me what to do. And that's, that not only is that not a helpful method for approaching scripture, the reason it's not a helpful method is because it treats scripture like something it is not. It is not a dictionary or an encyclopedia of instructions. It's not a guidebook for life. It has really important, I mean, truly radical transformative things to say about how you should live your life, but it is not itself just a straightforward didactic guidebook. Do this and that, you know, under these circumstances, when you are in this situation, respond this way. It doesn't tell you that. Um, but we want it to do that. So we find a story and instead of recognizing that this particular uh, narrative of humans interacting in the world together is part of this like grand story with all of these interconnected threads that have all, but find its ultimate meaning in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. Instead of thinking about this grand story that way, we pull a story out of its context. Um, One of my favorite examples of this when I used to do uh, children's ministry, our curriculum that I will not name, for uh, David and Goliath was like, okay, here's the story. What's the, what's the meaning, right? And they're talking to kids. And the meaning was believe in yourself and you can take on any challenges, which is theologically false. The story is not about believing in yourself at all. It's literally about believing in God. But I think the reason we can twist it that way is because we approach the story not with, what does this tell me about this grand story, this redemptive arc of history? What does this tell me about who God is and how humans tend to interact with each other? And then how do I apply that complicated story to my own story, my own life? Instead, we go, tell me what I'm supposed to do. And so the story of David and Goliath becomes, how are you supposed to act? And obviously we don't think we're supposed to throw rocks at anyone. So the closest thing that we can get is like, believe in yourself when you're facing challenges, which is not a false, I mean, you want to believe in God and not yourself, but the idea that you will face challenges and you should you know, face them a certain way is true but it can squash like this really vibrant story into what do I do next in my life, which isn't very helpful. Yeah. Uh, and I, w- I would just love your thoughts on how, how can we um, become better at like figuring out, Hey, this is more of a descriptive thing. This is prescri- like a prescription type of thing, because it's not like uh, either, either one of those is bad. It's just using them in the right context as you were saying. I think one of the things is, is making sure we're, we're attentive to genre. What kind of part of scripture is this? There's a difference between narrative accounts, um, between, uh, epistles, between prophecy, like having a sense of that is really important, which requires reading things in their context and not pulling them out of their context. But I, I also think the other thing is, I think the way that I grew up thinking about scripture was you have your daily quiet time and you should get something out of it. And, and so if you're in Leviticus, what are you going to get? What are you going to get out of that? Like, it just feels silly, you know, but if I had a sense of this wild, strange book that I do not control or have authority over, but that has moral authority over me because of the God who inspired it, I'm just going to sit in it. And over time, I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will use it to convict me and to change how I act, but I'm not going to treat it, um, as such a, like, how do I pull you know, value out of this to then apply to my life, which again, having that move to application is really important. It it should change your life. But I think the way that we avoid messing up the prescriptive descriptive thing is in part just saying, let's just sit in this whole story and let's trust that both the Holy Spirit working through this text and the Holy Spirit in the life of our community will continue to lead us into how we should live. And there will be times when the way that the Holy Spirit does that is by making a particular verse come alive in a way where we go, 
I am not doing that. And that is clearly what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but to not expect that of every single verse at every single moment, because if you do think of scripture as this big story that should shape and change our lives over time with the work of the Holy Spirit, then it can kind of make you less tense about pulling an exact meaning out of every single verse. Yeah, it's almost, I don't know, it just makes me think of like, we're, we're putting improper expectations on, yes. on the scripture then, especially if, if we, we feel the pressure to get something out. <laughs> every single time of it. Yeah. And weirdly enough, like lower expectations, like having just a clear cut, do this from a single verse is actually like not as good of a thing as this is this wild story that you can simmer in for your whole life and never grasp all of it. And it will continue to surprise you and motivate you. And it's like, that's a better thing than what we often expect of it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just got me thinking what, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on maybe on like, why do we go to that like higher expectation of it, of, of figuring that out and not like the lower expectation, because that seems like a, it seems like a counter intuitive thing to do maybe. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I I really do think it comes back to like some of the ways we were taught, um, to treat scripture, even in terms of like, I think it's really good to read the Bible every single day, but I did have such a sense of like, you have 15 minutes, you have to read this much. And it's, it is a sort of checklist kind of thing. Um, and I, one of the things I've become so passionate about recently is like, I love the Bible so much. And I don't think it was often because of those ways I was taught to think about it. It's kind of in spite of those ways. And my biggest like thing that I want to get through to people nowadays is people my age who grew up in the church and kind of had the joy of studying scripture sucked out of them by those kinds of expectations. There's one way to do this. It should have this direct application. It's um, and it's just sort of like a drudgery duty kind of thing um, to just feel some freedom to like figure out what makes you come alive while doing this because that you're supposed to. There's so many verses that talk about loving the law, loving God's word, and so um, if you need to like listen to it, if you need to listen to someone read it, if you need to listen to music that you know someone that puts it to music. I love listening to Shane and Shane's like Psalms albums. Um, if you need to do something else that doesn't fit the prescribed model that you were given to find some joy in it. I really think at the end of the day, like finding that joy in it, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and if that was the, like, if we went, I'm trying to find joy and this model fits that, that's great. But instead of, um, this is the one model and this is how we do it. I think that leads us to do this thing we've been talking about because that the posture that we're in, in that moment leads us to kind of expect those things from it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I was, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about and hearing your perspective on that I've been thinking about a lot recently is I've, I've grown up in a, in a, you know, a, in a tradition to where values ap- application a lot, mm-hmm. um, kind of the, the prescriptive method that you were talking about. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about is how does like the role of our, our mind and our thought and our thinking and like the thinking part of our brain and the intellectualism, how does that apply into it? Um, and I'd be curious on one, your thoughts on how, how can intellectualism apply to our faith and what is maybe the resistance, um, why we have that resistance? Yeah. I mean, even just what we were talking about when it comes to scripture, it's like, I remember hearing when I started seminary, don't make your devotional time the same as your study time because devotional time is different from study time. And there is some wisdom to that, which is like, don't let your day job basically of being a seminary student 
um, make everything just sort of rote and, you know, every day and you lose some of the passion for it. And yet what I learned is I was like, if I am forced to fit this like model (laughs) that someone gave me of, I'm going to sit alone, I'm going to read the Bible and it's going to be, it's going to produce certain feelings in me. And I'm going to have a certain kind of reaction that just didn't do it for me. (laughs) But like sitting down, I remember my, my second semester of Greek, my professor said that he would give us extra credit if we did our translation assignments devotionally. And there were people in the class that were like, what are you talking about? (laughs) This is boring, hard, difficult. And I remember thinking, and now I know it's because this is who I am as a person. I I immediately understood what he was talking about. I I was like, yes, when I have worked through this difficult translation and thought through what each of these words mean, it does something to my heart. And so it was helpful for me to realize that some of us will meet God intellectually. Like that will be a place that isn't dry. I mean, I remember hearing so much of that before seminary, you're going to cemetery, not seminary. You're, you know, don't let your faith get all dry and academic. And it was like, that's a real threat for people. I don't want to deny it. People are saying that for a reason. Um, but I really think it comes down to like understanding ourselves and understanding vocation really well to get that. There is a real gift that intellectually minded and oriented people can give to the church. If we don't make it what everyone has to do, just like, the fact that there are people who are, uh, I remember this in high school, it was kind of like the godliest people were the people that just like emotionally lost it during worship. That's not going to be me. And I like, it's just not, that's just not going to be me. But that person doing that, I can praise God watching that person emotionally respond to this music because I know it's coming from this genuine place. And if we had that sense, I think of vocation and a really strong sense of the diversity of the body that everyone brings different perspectives that are good and they don't have to be in competition. Um, I think that that would, that would do a lot. And then the other part of it, as you kind of alluded to is there is just for American Christians, this, um, history of anti-intellectualism, this like suspicion, like kind of like I just said, of like, you go to seminary and like, who knows what's going to happen, you know? Um, and, and I, I do think part of it is a control issue. Um, when people go to college, when they start studying things at really high levels, they will change. They'll be different people and we can't kind of control where they'll go with that. Um, but there's a whole lot we can get into with like the history of how we've ended up in that place. But I do think there is, um, an unfortunate strand of that in a lot of American churches. And I don't think it necessarily will be fixed just by being like, no, this thing is good. I think it would actually be better fixed by going, that's for some people. And this other thing that you do is for you. And actually me sharing what I love, not even just teaching it to you, but me just being excited about what I love. Like that glorifies God and you watching that is a good thing. And then me watching you be thrilled about the thing that you do is glorifying God and is a good thing too. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Say more about that, of the, like the thinking part. And even as you you were mentioning, balancing it with the feeling and like the, the doing part of it as well. Yeah. Um, when I first started learning in seminary about the fact that on one hand, a lot of American churches can be pretty anti-intellectual. On the other hand, they can tend to think that we are brains on sticks and we don't really pay attention to our bodies. And we don't think about things like desire and emotion. We just kind of act like if we know the right things will be good. It's such a weird combination that we can have both of those things at once, but we do. Um, I was so resistant at first to this idea because I, think of myself as a, like when, when someone first, I read this in a James K. Smith book that we're not brains on sticks. I was like, well, maybe you're not, but I am <laughs> like, that is how I you know thought of myself. I'm a thinking person. I'm a thinking being, and I happen to have a body and whatever, you know? Um, and yet there's something that we really miss when it comes to the way that I thought about this the other day. I just, um, this last week, 
I went on a pilgrimage around my city. This Christian organization said it's important for us to learn, especially the racial history, but broadly the history of this particular city, which had um, which was significant in the civil rights movement, has a plantation nearby that was a, a site of horrific enslavement and torture of people. We should go to those places physically, have our bodies be there and learn about this place we're in. And now in the like week since then, every single time I have driven into my apartment, like parking lot, I have re- like remembered in my body that I am in a different kind of place than I felt like I was in before because I didn't know the history. I hadn't walked around it. I hadn't learned the things I've learned. And so even for me who thinks of myself as a brain on a stick, um, my body is central to how I navigate the world and gives me all of this information and shapes how I respond to things. Um, so that when I walk down the sidewalk where I learned this, uh, counter sit-in happened during the civil rights movement, my body remembers turning that corner and learning about this and having that be an emotional and a mental and spiritual experience. And my body remembers that I'm there before I've thought consciously about it. And so it's important for us to think about that as a way of knowing it's a, it's not just, um, sometimes in churches, we can talk about emotion in a really negative way, but emotion is all, is all, you know, tangled up in our bodies and it's not a bad thing. It tells us information. It helps direct how we live and act in the world. And what matters, like, I, I think that something could be said both about the life of the church, right? That, um, someone might have a more intellectual vocation and someone might have some other kind of vocation. We have to um, appreciate those different parts of the body. Like the body metaphor is really pertinent here, which is like true of my body that I have this intellectual part and this body part and to appreciate what all of those parts bring to my full understanding and to worship God in all of those ways um, is really important and and could go the other way too. Like once I've appreciated those things about myself, how does that lead me to then appreciate the truth of that in the body of Christ too? Yeah. No. What what helps you? You know, you said that you're you're more you tend to lean more towards the thinking piece of it, um, and so that leaves you know I'll, I'll just call it like maybe like the three legged stool. You know, you got thinking, you got feeling, and then you got doing. You've mentioned you know part of part of the doing thing, but what like is that like an active thing that you've put into place to help you like maybe access like the thinking or the doing and the feeling, or what does that look like? I think for me, a lot of it has been being in a different kind of church uh, where my, my body matters at church in a way that honestly it didn't before. Um, I've thought about this a lot during COVID when we've had periods of time where we couldn't be in person and periods of time when we could. And even now when we're in person, it's different than it normally is. But I, I just thought about this the other day that the church that I'm in now, I, I, I miss so much not being in person there, but the churches that I had been in the past, it didn't make as big of a difference because my body didn't matter. You know, at my church now, not only am I involved in sort of saying some words in unison with other people in a space where it's quiet and I can actually hear everyone singing and speaking. Um, there's a part of the service where I'm kneeling in confession and I'm standing and, and hearing absolution from the pastor. And there's a part where I'm walking up and receiving communion. And there's, a, so my, my body matters a lot more in um, church. And I think it has really helped shape my awareness of how I'm getting information and how I'm interacting in the world in embodied ways and in emotional ways too. I mean, there's, there's something about your body being involved in worship that has helped me access the emotional part of myself that is not normally forefront in church. Normally, especially because I study theology, church is like another brainy (laughs) place for me to lay. And it's, it's a struggle. I really feel for seminary students when you're in church, because it's like really hard to turn off the part of your brain. That's, 
you know, evaluating and criticizing and what, it, but having my body be really involved in the service and having repetition and rhythm in the service changes that for me. It makes me more attuned to what's happening to me emotionally and in my body than is just happening in my brain. One of the things that I've uh, heard you say several times in in interviews, and I think even throughout your book, is um, you know we can't just think that if we know the right things that we will do the right things. I've heard you say that um, several times, and yet that like that that seems to be like the prevalent knowledge of like hey if I you know I show up on Sunday or even like I I read you know X book or whatever it is, um, I'm just naturally going to do that thing. Um, I'd be curious to hear from you what, like, where, where do you think that comes from? Like that, that, I mean, it is kind of a lie uh, that we believe. Um, and yeah, let's start there. I, I, not to just bring it back to church all the time, but that's kind of what I was trying to do with, <laughs> with this book that I wrote too, which is, yeah. I really think in a lot of evangelical churches, especially when we sort of shifted from the service involves a lot of things. The center point of the service for a lot of traditions is communion. Um, But regardless of of how it all kind of works out time-wise or emphasis-wise, the sermon is one part of a bunch of other things. And in a lot of evangelical churches now, the sermon is the main event, just partially just by time. Like they're so long. I, it's so funny now because I'm in a place where most of my friends are in mainline churches and like, they just have no concept of like going to church for like a 40, 50 minutes or like that just seems wild to them. Um, but so time-wise, but also just in the way that we think and talk about it, you could go to church and do a bunch of other things that are involved in the service. But if no one preaches, that's kind of the, that's how, you know, it's not the real service. Whereas historically it was, if you don't receive communion, that's not, that's not a real church service. Um, but the way that we have reoriented our services towards preaching as the fundamental thing, I think it teaches us to think that the main thing that we're doing in church and the main thing we need spiritually is information. And I don't think preaching is just about information. In fact, I think this is something evangelicals could learn from other traditions is that we should think more about what's happening emotionally and rhetorically in sermons. But even with those elements added, it really is on some level information being given to you, hopefully truthful, you know, exhortative information, but it's information. And so I think that contributes to the way in which over time we think we're thinking things. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, if the biggest thing that we need to receive every week is not communion, it's not the body of Christ, instead it's information from a pastor then of course we're going to think that that must mean that the problem with us is that we don't have enough information. And so if we had that information, we would act differently. And I don't think that everyone thinks this as strongly, like no one would in a lot of churches, I don't think would say this. They wouldn't be like, oh yeah, if we knew what to do, we would do it. And yet we continue to apply the same solutions to problems. Um, I talked about this specifically in the context of politics, because I noticed that so often I did this project in seminary where I looked at all of these curriculums that churches were using to think about political questions. And they all basically boiled down to here's 10 controversial political issues. Here's a bunch of Bible verses. Bam, there's the answer. And not only was it not robustly theological, it didn't think much about the nature of authority or human community or what are we even doing when we are participating politically, but it just really made it seem like if you just know the answers to these 10 questions, then you can go out and live a public life that is faithful. And yet, and I I think there was a lot of people that were pretty confident in all of that. In fact, I just, this last week was reading a bunch of books that kind of made this argument. And I think the last five or six years have just proven really forcefully how not true that is because we've seen such division. We've seen such um, 
confusion and like betray, like feelings of betrayal from people within the church that make clear to us that where we thought, oh, you can fix any of these problems with just some Bible verses that give you the straight forward. Clearly not. That's clearly not how you're going to resolve it. And so on one hand, I think it's a, the, the real answer is a robust theology where we're really thinking about politics more holistically and more creatively, but also what are we doing with our bodies? And like, what are we doing with our feet? What, what feelings are we feeling? Yeah. <laughs> because those are clearly <laughs> really impactful in our political life. And yet we tend to think that's other people and not us. Other people are just operating off their feelings. We are the ones that have the right information from the sermon and we can act appropriately. Yeah. Talk about how, hmm, how do you combine your feelings and your thinking like together, integrate them together? That is such a good question that um, I'm learning this semester. I mean, I knew this a little bit, but I'm reading a bunch of um, Aquinas and Augustine and like people have struggled to know <laughs> how, how those things happen in a human and how we can want things and not do them or how we can feel things and not act on them. Um, I do think one of the things is to really start thinking about desire, which is sort of a combination of those two things um, in that we are pulled through the world. And I, I draw a lot in the book on, uh, from James K. Smith, who talks a lot about this, and he's getting it from Augustine, who talks about this a lot, um, that we are sort of pulled through the world by the things that we love. But we're not helpless in the sense that you have no choice over what you love. Like you just completely, you know, it's just random. And then you have, you know, you're just pulled through the world by some force that you've no control over. Instead, it's those loves are shaped and formed. Um, in part by information, right? By reading scripture, by hearing it preached to you, but also in part by spiritual disciplines, by practices, by habits that help shape your desire. And so it includes both that intellectual element of learning and hearing um, and that formation embodied element of practices and habits. Both of those are required to form desire correctly, um, to form love correctly. And I think another part of this that we're missing when we think a lot about, well, if I knew all the right things, I would act the right way. We tend to think, well, if I just love God, I love God. And then everything else sort of falls into place. And what Augustine so powerfully talks about is that there is a proper way to love all sorts of things ordered underneath your love of God. But that doesn't just sort of like automatically happen. <laughs> it's not like, oh, as long as I love God, I do whatever I want. That's great. You know, no loving, um, people as people are meant to be loved is something that has to be both learned and formed in you loving material goods as they were meant to be loved and not as more than they were meant to be loved. Um, all of those things require understanding how our loves are ordered underneath. And, and like I said, that includes both ritual and habit and practices forming us and learning. Like I'm in a class this semester, we're reading a ton of um, patristics and medieval thinkers about how we think about money. And there are people in that class that are like, Oh, I don't know what money is. And I don't know how to, how to think about its place in my life and how I have desired it, the way I have, the way my loves have been ordered. Um, so practices and habits play a really big role in that, but so does what, you know, learning things about, um, how Christians have thought about things throughout history is really important, but it isn't just that either. Yeah. It's almost, I don't know, almost just thinking like our I mean, our habits and our thoughts, they're, they're so, uh, entwined together yeah. and yeah. Uh, one, one thing that I wanted to ask about that I was just thinking about while you were talking is, you know, on the one hand, you know, we, uh, you know, obviously depending on your tradition, um, it can be a little bit more, you know, anti-intellectual and yet 
you also have your statement as well of, you know, if you just think the right things, you know, we will be okay. Um, and it seems like they, they almost like merge together in a sense, which is just such an odd combination uh, to have happen as well. Um, and like, I just think like if, I just think that I would have guessed that it probably would have led to greater curiosity. And it doesn't seem to be that that is the case. Um, whenever thinking about how the church tends to deal with questions as well. And it almost seems like they're, especially depending on what question that you ask, um, you know, you can be cut off from the church. And so I would be curious on your thoughts of like, how do you, how do you handle your questions that you have whenever you're not even sure that you have like a safe place to explore the answers to those questions or not even, not even to explore the the answers, but even to ask the question in itself. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think you've, yeah, you've really pinpointed why those two things can exist because I think on one hand, we think if we know all the right answers, we'll do the right things, but we also think there's a singular answer and it's predetermined and so we don't need to ask too many questions. And we're anti-intellectual sometimes, like I said, a control thing of like, you might start thinking your own thoughts out there somewhere. Um, people might say untrue things to you, you know, and we act like we haven't adequately prepared people for that. And we haven't, um, but our response is not to adequately prepare them. It's to just say, don't go out into that wild world and learn some strange things. Um, yeah, I, I feel this um, because I have this really, you know, like core memory from growing up where... I had just had this really intense experience at a youth conference. And I was like, I am on fire for God. Like I am ready to do this for real. It was a significant, like, um, you know, in the years since then, I've sort of acted like, oh, you silly teenager. But like, no, this was this really significant um, moment in my faith. And I decided I was going to read the Bible in a year, which I never had. And I got a spiral notebook and I was going to every day write down every question I had while I went through the Bible. I had so, I had so many questions because there is some wild, weird stuff in there. And I was 13 and I was like, what is even happening? Like this, there are so many things no one ever told me. I was so confused. And I told a youth leader um, at church, like I, to be fair, this was overwhelming to her. So this may have influenced her response, but I have this like fully filled out giant notebook. I'm like, okay, starting with number one, I'm going to ask you all of my questions. And she, again, could have been quite overwhelmed. But she also basically said, you're questioning the Bible and that's bad. Like you should not be doing that. And it wasn't really until seminary that I remembered that again. And I thought, how has that, it took me, I mean, relatively not very long, but compared to some of my colleagues now, it took me a little while to realize I was interested in theology. I think because of that experience of just like, stop asking so many questions. Um, so I feel that as like a, you're not in a place where that's welcomed. I think one of the things that can help, um, one is to really be clear about the posture that you're coming in with. I think people assume, for example, this youth leader, you've got a bunch of questions. Your posture must be, this thing must be wrong. Let me prove it. Um, and I think we need as the church more patience and humility with a teenager in that posture, because it makes total sense that they would be in that posture. The world that we live in, the questions, that, it makes sense. But if you are trying to figure out, okay, how do I ask questions in a really good way in a space that might not be amenable to them? I think it, I think communicating really well that your posture is one of, of curiosity and discovery and delight in the things you might find, um, instead of what people tend to assume, which is that you're just here to criticize and you're just here to condemn and you're just, 
Um, and no one likes that. I don't like that when churches do that for me about the things that I've said, you know, criticize and condemn is the whole, is the whole thing. So I think being clear about your posture and checking yourself, like if you are a believer, if you're not a believer, that's one thing. I completely understand why you might just be trying to describe why this book is not real or truthful. Um, but if you are, then like really evaluate what it means to have a faithful posture towards asking good questions and see that as a part of faithfulness. It is really faithful to ask questions because asking the question, it means that you believe that the answer you will find, whatever weird and wild thing it might be, is not devastating. That at the end of all of your work and your questions, God is good and faithful. Like if you are still a believer and you're asking questions, those questions are incredibly faithful things to ask. And I think trying to communicate that to people who are skeptical in our churches is important because on one hand, they're not acting in in kind and faithful ways a lot of the time, but at the root of that is often fear. I mean, they're concerned for people. Sometimes they really deeply, they have seen people walk away from the faith and they're worried. And so they want to shut down what they think is happening. And so having a little compassion too, for them, which goes back to the whole, like emotions are all at play in all of this. <laughs> so like, they're afraid you're afraid. Like we, we have to be able to say both have compassion for what people are feeling and treat them as serious. Like really, truly believe you have a good reason for doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying, even if I disagree with you about it. Um, and then communicating where we're at, um, both in our posture and being honest about where we're at emotionally. Um, when we're talking to people who might be resistant. Yeah, that's such a good point because it makes me think of, you know, just just as you were saying, tying back to the emotion thing, like the emotion that is raised in me by the question that you asked has nothing to do with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, that's a me thing. That's not a you yep. thing. Um, you know, I'd be curious for any any more of your thoughts on, you know, uh, if, it, if it hasn't happened to, you know, um, someone who's listening right now, at some point it is going to happen to where you are the person who is getting asked the question in that. And so how do you handle like one, like stewarding, like the person's trust that that, like they've come to you for an answer for some reason. And I'd be curious your thoughts on how do you handle that? Well, yeah. Um, I, yes, have thought about this a lot. I, I spent the last few years working in young adult ministry with an interesting mix of people where it's about half uh, seminary students and half like there was a few more church people, but there was quite a bit of people there that were, that were, hadn't grown up in church at all, had no real background. Some were believers, some were sort of just checking us out. So you had like the most extreme range of people who know things. You have people who know too much maybe, and you have people who don't know almost anything. And it was really, um, I felt like one of the most important things I could do in that space. I'm thinking of a group setting, but this was true when I was talking to people one-on-one too. One of the best things that I could do is affirm people's questions as legitimate. Um, I learned in that group that seminary trained people can be the worst people to respond to questions because they can tend to be like, well, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Or like, and, or, and sometimes it's not that they won't outright say that they might just kind of facially or, you know, respond that way. The biggest thing is just jump to, here's the answer. I learned this in class last week. I'm so excited you asked. Like, let me jump into it. And and there's a moment for that. I really do think being thrilled about the Bible in front of other people is one of the best like things that we can do. More than the content of your teaching is just like you being thrilled about the Bible in front of other people is a great thing. But there's also a moment to not jump in and like have the right answer immediately. Um, but to affirm that the question is legitimate. I, one of the best examples I can give of this we were going through uh, Jeremiah in my Bible study and we got to a passage. I don't remember where it is, where God is, is telling the people, why are you sacrificing your children to idols? I would never ask child sacrifice of you. That's not the kind of God that I am. 
and the brightest, loveliest woman in this group who was in medical school. She was so smart and she questioned everything. And I loved it. She was the, she's the person that like you would think wouldn't be good to be. It's the best person to have in the group. And so she just goes, well, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son and God sacrificed his son. So isn't God a God who desires child sacrifice? And I could just see like the, the wheels turning in the minds of my fellow seminary students. And they were like, I have an answer to this, you know? And I think the best thing initially to maintain, to be, to, to honor that person. And to, like you said, to maintain trust is to start with a moment of going, that is hard. Yes. That is a rough question. And also, can I just say, Good. Like you're doing biblical theology, you know, friend, like you are looking at all these connections and you're putting it together. That's amazing. Like, I just want to affirm. That's a great question. Um, and then not to stay in the world of just like, Oh, I don't know. That's hard. Cause that's not how I've seen people in my own context now who think the answer to all of these kinds of difficult questions about violence in the old Testament or about, um, substitutionary atonement or whatever is to just kind of be like, I don't know. I don't know. That's just a tough one. And there's a moment for that. And then there's a moment for people are trying to live their lives and know that they can trust God and trust scripture. And so if you have gotten some resources to answer that question, then you come in with some, some answers that are helpful, but balancing those two impulses to rush in with answers and to hold the tension and to, you know, live in the mess, which is all good, but to kind of have both of those things together is, is hard. Yeah. Uh, that, that hits at like another thing that I've been like just pondering a lot recently is like in all of this is, is like, I just call it like the mystery of God. Like there are just some things that we're not yeah. going to know. Yeah. Um, and so I would be curious for your thoughts of how do you balance between that, um, like the mysteriousness of God and like, if we're going to be, I'll just say for me and the mysteriousness of the Bible, like there are just some things that yeah. we're not going to understand, um, with the pursuit of, of knowledge as well. Yeah. I mean, I think on one hand, like you just said, there comes a moment where you just go, yeah, I don't know, but you also say, look, there are confusing parts and then there are crystal clear parts. And the parts that are crystal clear, even in the Old Testament, this is literally what I did in that Bible study when we got to this question. I went back to the verse about God not desiring the, the death of evil people and just kind of went, here's who God is, is merciful and holy and good. And that is clear. These other things, how that fits with that could be hard. I could find actually some really helpful theologians who thought through interesting ways to think about this. But some of them will not, like some of those answers are not going to be satisfying to you. Um, what will be satisfying is going, this is the absolute clear part. And I don't have to question that. And I don't have to, I'm trying to reconcile this difficult thing to this clear thing. I don't have to try and reconcile the clear thing to the difficult thing as if the difficult thing is the determinate solid thing. It's not, this is. Um, I think that's important to just kind of keep going back to like, you know, you never lose sight of this. You don't, you know, you always hold on to this. Um, and then the other thing I would say to like, have the balance part. One of the things that I think is such a gift of being in seminary is you have all these assignments where you have to like run down a massive rabbit trail to answer this one very specific, strange question. And I think the benefit of that is not only like, I think that's fun. Not everyone thinks that's fun. I do. But, but I think what it does is it, it forces you to learn through practice that when you run down those rabbit trails, the truth is always better than it initially appeared. Like God is always better. The more that you have studied, there's never a moment when I've gone, Oh, I asked a, Oh, I asked the wrong question. It turns out God's not good. Like I have always learned things that have made me more certain of God's goodness. 
And I think having had that experience, I think it gives us the freedom to go, yes, there will be just things that are within the mystery of God and scripture is confusing. It was given to a people in a particular place and why God let us handle this sacred thing. And we've messed it up and it's confused. Like why? I don't know. Um, but don't be afraid to go down the rabbit trail. Cause I think sometimes the mystery of God stuff can make, can lead us to go. I just, I shouldn't, I shouldn't t- go down that trail. Cause I might find something I don't like. No, you will find goodness. I, I promise you. Um, you might find confusion and mystery too, but you will not find out that God is not who you thought he was, unless it's in a better way than you thought, in which case that's definitely what you will find. Uh, as comfortable as you're sharing, would you mind sharing an example of like a question for you to where you, like you went down the path and it was like, oh man, like this is, this is so much better than I even thought it could be. Yes. One of the, one of the, um, Times I was like early in seminary, I got asked to teach um, a Bible study for women, not for young adults or for teenagers. Like it was a big deal. There's a bunch of little old ladies that are going to, you know, hear what I have to say. I was asked to teach Bible study. Everyone signed up before me. We were going through Genesis. Everyone signed up before me. The only slot available left was Sodom and Gomorrah. And I was like, why did you, I am the youngest teacher by 10 years. <laughs> like, why did you give this to me? And I remember being so worried, like, what am I even going to say about this? Like, this is just awful. And I got, I, I did all of this study on not only how the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are described throughout the whole corpus of the prophets, which is not how we expect. It's actually quite relevant and applicable to us. Their sins are described as mistreating the poor and being proud in their wealth and mistreating foreigners. Universally relevant, applicable things for the people of God to be confronted with. But I also learned that the way that that story is sandwiched between two other instances, particularly for Abraham and Sarah, of expecting to be mistreated as foreigners, and actually it comes right after this, the king treats them better than they expect that they should be treated as foreigners. And so this whole little section of scripture really is like a really profound, intense way of communicating God will judge nations, not just individuals, but nations by how they treat foreigners. Sometimes he will bless them when the king treats uh, Abraham and Sarah well, when in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, they will be destroyed. Um, And what I mean by like better than I thought was I went into this story going, this is just completely unapplicable (laughs) to our lives. This is strange and weird. And there's nothing that I'm going to find that's good or encouraging. And instead what ended up happening was not only did I learn this incredible thing about God using these stories and inspiring them to be written in this kind of order to so forcefully communicate to us that how you treat foreigners matters. But the moment that I was given to teach this was a moment where I was in the state of Texas and the governor of Texas was not allowing refugees who had already been cleared by the U.S. federal government to reside in the state of Texas because he thought we just had too many and we couldn't take them. So God had given me in this moment a passage that I thought was the worst one I could be given and actually was the most relevant for the situation. And I was probably the only person in that group, because I was naive enough and young enough to go, let's talk about refugees in Texas. I was probably the only one that was going to say that. And so in retrospect, that was exactly the passage that I needed to be given. The passage meant something better than I thought, and it was more applicable than I thought. But if I hadn't kind of gone down the rabbit trail of, of learning what's happening literary wise with these passages, what's happening historically, what's happening with the prophets, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to walk into that room and go, I have a message <laughs> for you today. Um, but God is gracious and showed those things to me. Yeah. And, you know, you've, you've alluded to it a few times throughout this, but you've also written a book called the liturgy of politics as well. And one of the things, just as I was, you know, 
even even before we were getting on the call, I thought, you know, it's one thing to even go, hey, I'm going to write a book about, you know, politics and faith and that. And then, you know, I was just looking in your bio and you're like, no, you're studying like political theology. Like this is something that you want to do like as a, yeah. as a career, <laughs> which is just a whole nother like decision in and of itself. And so I'd be curious for like, what led you to go? Yeah, this is, this is something that like, I want to dedicate my life to, or my work to, or my career to. You know, I, I kind of had always been interested in politics growing up. Um, and then I went to college at Liberty University which was a really um, intense <laughs> experience, um, which it's funny now. There was a while there where it was like people could still have like mixed opinions about Liberty. Now it's great because I can just be like, it was not good. It, things were not good there. It's fine. Um, but it was a really intense period of um, pretty partisan political activism, both by Jerry Falwell, the president at the time, and just in terms of the structure of the school. I mean, we were hearing from politicians or political pundits or people involved in campaigns constantly up, up until the 2016 election. I graduated in 2016. And it really was a crash course in the tension that exists in a lot of spaces in America between what we say we believe theologically and what we're willing to support politically. And it, and it really made me passionate about combining both of those things. I had friends who left there and became lawyers and were like, I'm going to advocate for things I care about, or I, I had friends who left there and they were, I'm going to run for office and not be like the people that I was kind of taught to be. I left and I thought, I need to figure out what's happening theologically and historically and culturally with the people that I love, which are predominantly evangelicals in America. Um, and so I went to seminary and kind of thought, I'll study that for a little while or I'll figure out what to do. And then I went to seminary and I discovered that political theology was a thing. It was this like vast, robust um area of study that to be honest, evangelicals really don't get into at all. We have a handful of people who like, like to comment on politics and we don't tend to have people who are really deep in the weeds on people have been writing theology about this for the entire history of the church. Um, and it's had its own path and history and, um, in, you know, in fights and debates and whatever. And so I just became really passionate about, um, learning about all of that. Um, both because I, love school and I'd love to teach and just kind of be in school spaces forever, but also because I thought I could continue doing the stuff that I'm doing and really caring about um, our political witness in the world, not from an academic place, but I also felt like there was a need for people to, to really be well-versed in that kind of stuff. And so I feel really lucky that I get to continue to study that now, but that's really, the goal is to be the kind of person who is is really loves the people that I want to speak to and is a part of communities that I want to speak to, but also has spent some time really trying to study other traditions and the whole history of thinking about politics uh, theologically. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned you, it's again, it's just one of those things that is, it's just, it's funny for me to think about because on one end you have people who are very much, you know, Hey, church politics, very separate. They shouldn't like, they shouldn't inform one one or the other. And then on the other end, you do have a, nope, they are very much the same thing. Um, what I, you know, they're, they're very much aligned. And so I would be curious for your thoughts on how do you engage with the person who is like, yep, they're exactly the same, you know, politics and religion are my faith. And then how do you engage with the person who's like, nope, they are two separate things and they don't even belong to, to each other. Yes, that's an excellent question because I do feel like a lot of people in the aftermath of 2016 and evangelicals have kind of picked one of those two to belong to. 
And I don't think either of them are good. I think a lot of yeah. people thought, oh, that first one, let's do that now. Let's just be completely separate, nothing to do with. Um, I don't think that's, I don't think that's helpful either. Um, I think one of the ways that I tend to talk about this with people is you are one person with one life. You have different aspects of that life, but we would recognize it to be hypocritical if the way that you lived your life in one sphere was radically different from the way that you lived your life in another sphere. We would not recognize it to be hypocritical if the way that you acted in your job had distinct differences from the way that you acted with your children. Um, but if you had a completely different ethic and like worldview and sense of yourself in those two spaces, we would say that was a problem. And I think the same could be said of how we think about our political lives, which is that it's part of who we are and we should be consistent in the way that we live our lives in all spheres. And yet we will be different and we will expect different things of our political participation than we will expect of our church or our family or our job or our neighborhood. Um, I think the other big part of this is that people tend to think that politics is this thing out there that I can either choose to get involved in and poke and prod from the outside, or I can choose to leave it alone instead of recognizing that it informs everything about our lives, especially if we stop thinking of politics just as who the president is or who my senator is. But we think about local government. We think about state government. We think about national government. We also think about community organizations and uh, the blood donation center down the road. And we think about the community center and we think about the trash collection service and the people that clean the roads when it snows. And we recognize that all of these are part of what it is to be a part of a community that has communal needs. And then we can say, okay, all of my life is caught up in all of these things. I want to be as Christian as I can be, as faithful as I can be to the witness of, of Christ in all of these spheres. And it won't look exactly the same in every single you know, sphere, but it will, it should be informed by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. One of the things that one of my professors in seminary really drilled into my head too, which he's gotten this from other theologians, and this is not a new idea, but there isn't really anything in your life that should look the same if Jesus hadn't uh, been resurrected. And so that, that includes your politics. Your politics should not be able to make sense to other people without that bit of information that Christ died and was resurrected and is coming again to bring uh, to fruition new heaven and new earth. Like that should be so central to how you live your whole life that it's indistinguishable. Like you can't describe it well without it. And I think that has to be true of our politics. And that way of thinking about it is not the same as they're exactly the same thing. Um, and it's not the same as they're totally different. Yeah. Uh, I we could keep talking about this for a long time, but one other question I want to uh, ask you about is what is something that you've learned from, you know, from studying, from reading the Bible about Jesus and how he engaged in politics? Yeah. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I, <laughs> I'm tempted to give like a an answer about, you know, uh, a parable that Jesus told or a way he interacted with people. But I'm also tempted to be like Jesus in revelation, <laughs> which honestly like is, I'm going to go with that one because I think we're all pretty accustomed to like Jesus talking to people, Jesus, Jesus returns in revelation to, for the purposes of inaugurating new heaven and new earth. And that to me means something not only significant for the kind of first three quarters of revelation, which is wild and confusing and difficult, but at the heart involves a lot of judgment of powers and principalities and says something really terrifying to any human aspiration to power. 
um, and any human aspiration to think that we are in control of our own destinies and that we can kind of exploit other people with no consequences. Um, so there's that element, which is a huge amount to say to politics. And then there's the second half of new creation, which has this much more hopeful. I mean, the first half, the first half is hopeful in the sense of some of us really need the hope of exploitation and oppression will not be the final word. That's not the end of the story. Um, for people who are suffering and are in pain, that is hopeful good news, even though Revelation is confusing and dark to a lot of us who are in pretty comfortable situations. It also has historically been a source of comfort for people who are oppressed. But the more kind of like sensibly hopeful part at the very end is also that the work that we were commissioned to do in the Garden of Eden, the work to build communities, to prosper, to work creation that God has given and bring fruitfulness out of it, that work is continued into revelation. It's continued into eternity. And so it gives us hope that the work that we do now, while it does not have to be the be all end all, I don't have to save the world with the work that I do. Jesus is going to do that. And yet I don't have to just think that it's useless because, well, it's all going to burn and whatever Jesus coming back, it doesn't matter. No, I have this beautiful picture of new creation to say, I am practicing right now, the kind of work that I will do for eternity and thank God in eternity, it will not be tinged with the sin and brokenness that it is tinged with now. And yet my suffering through the conditions on earth now to try and bring about justice and reconciliation amongst people and human communities is an act of faithfulness that is not only rewarded, but also mirrors and like prefigures what will happen in eternity. And I can find meaning in the work that I'm doing now, instead of treating it as sort of just this thing I have to do until Jesus comes back. Yeah, that's really good. Well, before, uh, you know, you tell people where they can, you know, get the book and all that. Is there anything else that is just on the tip of your mind that you want to make sure, Hey, I, I want to make sure that I say this or anything like that. Hmm. I think related to that last thing I said, um, one of the things I typically end up talking to people about um, when it comes to conversations about politics is we have so been taught to think of it, not only as just who you vote for for president or who you vote for for a senator, but to just think about it in terms of how do we get the power we need to do the thing we need to do. And that is a perspective that assumes that God does not exist. A perspective that assumes not to, not to be too harsh about it, but it does. Perspective that assumes God exists says, I will till the ground in front of me and I will be faithful to what God has given me. And if I get put in a position of power, I will tremble <laughs> before God and hope that I do not mess it up because most of the time we do. And, and I will just do the things that are, that are necessary to do to bring, um, to alleviate material suffering for the people in my communities and even if that is a small thing that seems totally insignificant because the person I think that would fix everything in the White House doesn't win, that that's not the way that Christians should, should value the work that we do. And the way that we learn how to better value that work is by thinking of new heaven and new earth. It's, it's a question of eschatology. If we truly believe that Christ is coming back and will perfect and glorify and redeem those works that we did in faith by the Holy Spirit, then we can have the freedom to do them now without needing to calculate about what the best kind of strategic thing is or how I can gain the power to get the stuff, you know, the ends justify the means kind of mentality. I can just do the faithful thing and trust that God is working. That's really good. Uh, well, I know that people are going to want to, you know, keep up with you, you know, get the book, all that stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Um, if you don't want to give your money to Amazon, which you can, if you want, but if you don't, you can go to, uh, university press's website, um, or anywhere that sells books online to get the liturgy of politics. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and thanks for doing the work. Thanks, Caleb. Okay. So I think coming out of that conversation with Caitlin, there's uh, several things that I could talk about, but I want to hit on uh, one thing that really stood out to me in that conversation. And I think it's this is, you know, one of the things that I, uh, you know, have just been thinking about a lot is how, how do you deal with questions that have that you may not have the answer to? And how do you deal with the mystery of God? Because God is God and we can't understand everything about him. And I've, I've asked several people that question before, but, uh, I, I think I loved her answer the best out of out of every time that I've asked that question. And it's simply this is that yes, there are, there are uh, mysterious things about God. Yes, there is a mystery of God. Yes, there, there are going to be things that we probably will never understand uh, about God. But what we need to remember in, in the mystery of that is that there are very there are things that we do know and we do know what is most important such as one of those things you know for for me being a follower of Jesus you know the re- like the resurrection the resurrection of Jesus and we know that God is is love and going back to those um I don't know if you would call them core truths or I'm not entirely sure what you would call those things but realizing that that is what is most important. And in in many cases that like, those are the things that should, you know, um, spur us on to continue to, um, to continue to seek truth, to continue to, you know, learn about the, the mystery of God and really, you know, the mystery of life as well. And so that's one of the big things that I took away from this conversation. I would love to hear from you. As well, and some of the things that you know that you've learned from this conversation, or maybe it's just some of the things in general that you're learning about right now. And the best way for uh, you, you know, to talk with me about those things, or I would love to hear from you, is by reaching out to me on Learners Corner Podcast uh, at gmail.com and would love to hear from you. And that um, also, you know, I'm doing a lot or sharing uh, a lot of some of the things that I'm learning about right now. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss any of that extra stuff um, or extra resources that I'm learning from is to subscribe on my newsletter, which is in, uh, in the show notes as well on that. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode or, uh, or I forgot to mention um, real quick, if you have something or someone that you would love us to cover on the podcast, email me as well. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit subscribe, you know, follow all of that stuff, leave a rating and write a review. That would mean a lot as well. Um, I think that's it for today. I do want to say thanks to Sam Massey for providing the music on this podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler for doing the editing on the podcast. And thanks to Caitlin for being on the podcast as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. I think that's all that I have for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.